Let's pray as we prepare to hear God's word this morning. Father, we want to hear from you. And we are grateful that you speak to us through your word and that you apply your word through your spirit. And we pray that as we have gathered this morning, that, that if there are any barriers to us hearing you well, if we have set up any boundaries that prevent you from speaking to us clearly, we ask that you remove those even right now. And Father, come and speak to us what each of us needs to hear today through this particular passage on this particular time in this particular group of people. Lord, we ask that you speak to each one of us and enable us, enable us to leave here today better equipped, more encouraged, closer to you. Amen. So I want to take just a minute before we step into today's text to, to give a little bit of a map of where we are in our broader preaching trajectory here. So we've been working through the first half of the Gospel of Mark and not hitting every verse or even quite every chapter, but we've been working through Mark 1 to 8 these few weeks, and, and next week we're going to wrap up this message, wrap up this series for a while. We'll pick it back up again and do the second half of the Gospel of Mark as we lead up toward Easter. But today we're reading from Mark 6, next week we'll be reading from Mark 8, and Dr. Ben Ribbons will actually be preaching next week. It's been uh, quite a while since he preached here, but Ben and I went to seminary together. He's been a theologian professor at Trinity Christian College for the last number of years, and he will be bringing this series to a close next week. And then after that, we're going to pick up, we're going to pick up Jeremiah 29 and also some of 1 Peter 2 and what those texts have in common and why we're picking them up is that they give us this sense of how to be at home in exile, this sense of as Christians in a challenging culture, how, how do we live? What do we do? So we're going to spend some time reflecting on what it means for us in this season to hear God's word for us as his faithful people in a world that is not faithful. So that's looking back the last few weeks, looking forward the next few weeks. For today, I'm going to read Mark 6, verses 14 to 56. It's a little bit of a longer passage. I had started out shorter, and it kept getting longer and longer as we got closer and closer. I did resist the urge to make it even longer, just so you know. But I, I want to give you a little bit of sense of, of what to listen for, because there's two or three themes that are maybe the main theme here, but there's one I want us to focus on. Now, I had a, a seminary professor and my thesis supervisor who had this line with a lot of Old Testament situations, says who? Says who? And we, we often, when it comes to different things today, when we're disagreeing, might pull out that line, says who? Who has the authority to say that? Who made you king? Says who? Our culture has an authority problem that none of us really want to respect authority. And, and if you don't think that you have an authority problem, it might be that you are the authority problem, right? You're, you've got one or the other. Well, in this text, we see an authority problem, and then we see some ways that Jesus is presented as a different authority, as a better King. So I'd invite you to listen for that as we read through Mark chapter 6, beginning at verse 14, going through the end of the chapter. So hear now the word of the Lord. And this comes right after Jesus has sent out his disciples and they've done miracles, healings, and casting out demons. King Herod heard about this, for Jesus' name had become well known. Some were saying, John the Baptist has been raised from the dead, and that is why miraculous powers are at work in him. Others said, he's Elijah. And still others claimed he is, the, he is a prophet, like one of the prophets of long ago. But when Herod heard this, he said, John, 
the man I beheaded, has been raised from the dead. For Herod himself had given orders to have John arrested, and he had him bound and put in prison. He did this because of Herodias, Herodias, his brother Philip's wife, whom he had married. For John had been saying to Herod, it is not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. So Herodias nursed a grudge against John and wanted to kill him. But she was not able to because Herod feared John and protected him, knowing him to be a righteous and holy man. When Herod heard John, he was greatly puzzled, yet he liked to listen to him. Finally, the opportune time came. On his birthday, Herod gave a banquet for his high officials and military commanders and the leading men of Galilee. When the daughter of Herodotus came and danced, she pleased Herod and his dinner guests. And the king said to the girl, Ask me for anything you want, and I'll give it to you. And he promised her with an oath, Whatever you ask, I'll give you up to half my kingdom. She went out and said to her mother, What shall I ask for? The head of John the Baptist, she answered. At once the girl hurried into the king with the request, I want you to give me right now the head of John the Baptist on a platter. The king was greatly distressed, but because of his oaths and his dinner guests, he did not want to refuse her. So he immediately sent an executioner with orders to bring John's head. The man went, beheaded John in the prison, and brought back his head on a platter. He presented it to the girl, and she gave it to her mother. On hearing of this, Jesus' disciples came and took his body and laid it in a tomb. The apostles gathered around Jesus and reported to him all they had done and taught. Then, because so many people were coming and going that they did not even have a chance to eat, he said to them, Come with me by yourselves to a quiet place and get some rest. So they went away by themselves in a boat to a solitary place. But many who saw them leaving recognized them and ran on foot from all the towns and got there ahead of them. When Jesus landed and saw a large crowd, he had compassion on them because they were like sheep without a shepherd. So he began teaching them many things. By this time, it was late in the day, so his disciples came to him. This is a remote place, they said, and it's already very late. Send the people away so they can go to the surrounding countryside and villages and buy themselves something to eat. But he answered, you give them something to eat. And they said to him, that would take eight months of a man's wages. Are we to go and spend that much on bread and give it to them to eat? How many loaves do you have, he asked. Go and see. When they found out, they said, five and two fish. Then Jesus directed them to have all the people sit down in groups on the green grass. So they sat down in groups of hundreds and fifties. Taking the five loaves and the two fish and looking up to heaven, he gave thanks and broke the loaves. Then he gave them to his disciples to set before the people. He also divided the two fish among them all. They all ate and were satisfied. And the disciples picked up 12 basketfuls of broken pieces of bread and fish. The number of the men who had eaten was 5,000. Immediately, Jesus made his disciples get into the boat and go on ahead of him to Bethsaida while he dismissed the crowd. After leaving them, he went up on a mountainside to pray. When evening came, the boat was in the middle of the lake and he was alone on land. He saw the disciples straining at the oars because the wind was against them. About the fourth watch of the night, he went out to them, walking on the lake. He was about to pass by them, but when they saw him walking on the lake, they thought he was a ghost, and they cried out because they all saw him and were terrified. Immediately he spoke to them and said, Take courage, it is I, don't be afraid. Then he climbed into the boat with them, and the wind died down. They were completely amazed, for they had not understood about the loaves. Their hearts were hardened. When they had crossed over, they landed at Gennesaret and anchored there. As soon as they got out of the boat, people recognized Jesus. They ran throughout that whole region and carried the sick on mats to wherever they heard he was. 
And wherever he went, into villages, towns, or countryside, they placed the sick in the marketplaces. They begged him to let them touch even the edge of his cloak, and all who touched him were healed. This is the word of the Lord. So there's a, well, there's a classic King Arthur myth, and then there's a classic King Arthur movie called Monty Python and the Quest for the Holy Grail. And there's a part in that movie when King Arthur comes riding up, and if you've seen the movie, he's riding like this, and he has a servant behind him clapping two pieces of coconut together, clap, 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 and they come up behind this peasant pulling, pulling a cart, and King Arthur says, old woman, and the man says, man, what? I'm a man, not a woman. Oh, sorry, and my name's Dennis. Well, I'm sorry, I didn't know, and you didn't bother to ask, did you? I said I'm sorry, and then there's this whole exchange between Dennis and King Arthur. Well, what I object to is that you automatically treat me as an inferior. And Arthur replies, well, I am king. And Dennis replies, oh, king, very nice, and how'd you get that, eh? By exploiting the workers. And I'm going to summarize the rest, not go word for word here, but, but King Arthur says, well, I'm the I am the king, and who, who lives in that big castle over there? And Dennis says, well, we, we don't have a lord. We have a, we're an anarcho syndicalist collective, and we, we have someone on a rotating basis, and so on and so forth. And eventually, King Arthur gets tired of it and says, be quiet. I order you to be quiet. Ooh, order. Who does he think he is? I am the king. Well, I didn't vote for you. You don't vote for kings. And then King Arthur tells the story of how there was this magic moment of the lady in the lake who, who threw him the sword Excalibur, thereby giving him divine right to be king. And, and Dennis responds, some lady lying in ponds throwing swords at people is no basis for a proper system of government. And King Arthur loses it and grabs Dennis and starts kicking him and inflicting some violence. And Dennis says, oh, come and see the violence inherent in the system. Come and see the violence inherent in the system. Did you see him repressing me? King Arthur in the quest for the Holy Grail is, is a bit of a joke of a king, right? And Dennis is the worst kind of peasant. Besides being smelly and stinky, he's rebellious. But we all, we all probably fit somewhere in that picture. That we're all kind of kicking out against, against people who we don't feel like really respect who we are and what we've earned. Or... Or we're kicking out and, and running our mouths against people who we feel like are misusing their authority, who, who don't have rightful authority, who are doing it wrong. And, and you look at our world and everybody wants, in some sense, everybody wants a king. Everybody wants somebody to be in charge. A lot of us want to be the king. And even if that's not our problem, then we want to look at the people in authority. We want to say, ah, oh, oh, they aren't getting it right. No way. Our culture lives in the says who. Who dares to take any authority over me? Who dares to tell me what to believe or do? Who dares? And what we see here at the beginning of the section that we read in Mark chapter 6 is, is a kingdom that is representative of all the kingdoms and all the families of the world, that we are, we are broken. The kingdom is broken, and it's a mess, a huge mess. We see Herod, and it's not actually King Herod. King Herod was his father. King Herod died. His, his kingdom got split up among a bunch of his sons and relatives. And, and this Herod, 
This Herod isn't even allowed to be called king. He's asked the emperor if he can be called king, and he doesn't get that title. It's kind of a, it's kind of a joke. He's a joke king, and he's a mess. He is such a mess. He has John in prison because John disagrees with a number of things that Herod is doing that are wrong, but then he likes to listen to John, and he's interested by what he has to say, but he doesn't understand it. He's kind of kind of a little dumb as this text portrays him, a little too interested in self-preservation to learn anything. And then we have this party, and we find out that Herod is is a fool, and he's easily manipulated because he's got this drunken thing going on with all the big people in the area, all the big shots, and, and he gets himself, as the text sort of hints, totally, totally plastered, can hardly speak, and then Then his wife, who was also his brother's wife, who he took unlawfully, her daughter comes in and and does does a dance. And that you should take for euphemistic for triple X-rated dance. And this plastered king who can barely get a sentence out says, whatever you want, up to half my kingdom, just say it and I'll do it for you. And the girl comes back and says, kill the prophet and give me his head on a platter. And now Herod's gotten himself into a mess, and either to keep his oath, he has, to, he has to do something he really doesn't want to do that's politically stupid, or he has to break an oath and have all the big people of the surrounding region look at him and say, you can't trust that guy, what a wimp. And it's, it's all self-inflicted. And these, to a greater or lesser extent, represent the realities of all the kingdoms of the world. And again, it can be to a greater or lesser extent, and we live in a, a country in a time where it's, it's much better than it has been throughout most of history, but, but if you look at your average king or your average ruler or your average authority figure, they are a mess. There is so many ways that people misuse their power and, and twist and oppress and break and, and fall apart. And there are so many ways that that people are oppressed and ground down and, and even killed for the most trivial and stupid of reasons. And as with many texts, we'd like to, we'd like to point the finger at others and, and other it and say, oh, no, no, that's not us, that's them. That's them. But as I learned at middle school basketball camp, if you point one finger at other people, the other three fingers are pointing at you. And we should ask ourselves, what's our relationship with authority? With whatever level of authority you have, are you always above reproach? Always? Every time? And with those, with those who have authority over you, are you, are you, well, do you speak out against their abuses or do you just go along when it's easy? And what about, what about genuine well-run, proper authority. Do you really respect that? We live in a time, and I think this has always been the case, going all the way back to Adam and Eve, but it, it's a, Adam and Eve, but it's a particular stress for now that none of us want anybody to tell us what to do. We want to pick everything for ourselves, and, and nobody, nobody gets to tell me what to think. And it even impacts our faith. So often when we come to questions of do we believe this or do we believe that, do we do this or do we do that, we'll listen to God, we'll listen to the Bible, but if it doesn't agree with how we feel things ought to be, well, 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 maybe we don't need to listen to that part of the Bible. 
We as a culture, we even as Christians have a fundamental authority problem that, that we live in a kingdom of this world that is falling apart and that is missing so many things. So that story sets the stage, and then it, it turns the focus to Jesus and invites us to see a different kind of king and a different kind of kingdom and see how Jesus functions. And the alternative to Herod and his drunken, debauched party is Jesus providing daily bread for a whole crowd. This is a radically different kind of kingdom. And it's such a different kind of kingdom that the, the disciples and the crowds, the crowds especially, but even the disciples, don't, they don't understand what Jesus is doing here. They just don't get it. It's, it's like a puzzle that you just can't get put together. The people see Jesus and they think they have him figured out, but the more pieces he puts in front of them, the more they have to say, I'm not getting it. I'm not getting it. Now, with this coming right after the King Herod story, there are some commentators who think that, that it's significant that it's exactly 5,000 men and they're divided into 50s and 100s. And what we maybe should hear here is an echo of a military uprising. Maybe these 5,000 men, this is a maybe, not a for sure, but maybe these 5,000 men, they've come and they've chased down Jesus because they think he's going to lead the revolution. Yeah, his cousin John got beheaded, and that should, that should be the match that sets it off. And Jesus is going to lead us to overthrow Herod and, and overthrow Rome, and hey, let's get together and let's do this thing. There is a sense where the crowd consistently in Mark wants Jesus to go all political on the authorities in place, to go medieval on them, so to speak. And what does Jesus do here with that crowd? Does he rabble-rouse? Does he, does he get them all wound up? No, no. He has deep compassion on them. And even though he and his disciples are trying to get away to have some time to themselves and the crowd shows up, Jesus still teaches them, cares for them, provides for them. And, and then when the point comes that his disciples, who, by the way, have just been doing a bunch of miracles on their own, when they come to him and they say, send these people away, it's too much, we can't do it. Well, Jesus doesn't send the people away. Instead, he miraculously takes this nothing these few loaves of bread and this little bit of fish, and, and he multipli multiplies them miraculously. And with his disciples, he distributes the bread, and there is enough food for, for 5,000 men, plus however many women and children were there. And note the contrast between Herod's party and Jesus' party. In Herod's party, you have this plastered king who can't control himself, who is trying to impress the high and mighty, who is just stupid and so easily manipulated and so prone to abuse his power. That's the Herod banquet. And then at the Jesus banquet, we see this king who, who has the power to create food out of nothing and who inconveniences himself and his closest followers in order to serve the crowd and in order to provide for their needs because he has compassion on them. And in part, what Jesus is doing here is, is showing how different it is to be in God's kingdom. To be not in a kingdom where the king is out for his own best interest, but to be in a kingdom where, where the king truly cares for the people. This text tells us Jesus has compassion on them because they're like sheep without a shepherd. And that is a phrase that echoes throughout the Bible, especially the Old Testament, whenever Israel does not have a king. 
or whenever Israel has a king that is so bad that he has disqualified himself from really functioning as a king. Jesus sees this crowd, these people, these sheep without a shepherd, this nation without a king, and he steps into the kingly role and he provides for them. There are, there are echoes of that sheep without a shepherd. And then there's also this picture of when the Lord brought his people out of, out of Egypt and into the wilderness, and he provided food for them miraculously, day after day, year after year. And, and the Gospel of Mark wants us to see Jesus fulfilling that role of being the one who is responsible for God's people, the one who provides for them miraculously, who gives them everything they need. Now, I said we've got, we've got an authority problem. And I think we do. And one problem is that we have oppressive authorities, that we have people who are not out for our best interests and who get everything wrong. And another reality is that whenever we have authority, we get it wrong. We are into power. We are into getting our own way. We are into the privilege, the privilege of what I have earned. But Jesus here shows us a king who invites us into a different kind of kingdom. And this is, actually, this is actually a kingdom where it's good news that we don't have the authority. This is a kingdom where the one who has power has our best interests at heart. And so when we come to Jesus, we, we on the one hand, we come to a king who is more powerful than any other king, but we also come to someone who cares for us. And some of us, I think, really struggle to accept that, that Jesus really cares for us, that he could really be gracious to me, that he could care for me. But we are, if we put ourselves in the story, we are among those who are fed by Jesus. We are among those who he provides daily bread for. And you know, some of us might come to Jesus, we might have more questions about how, how can you be really good for me? How can it be a good thing for me to submit to you? How can it be a good thing for me to be part of your kingdom? I want to do my own thing. And what we see here is a Jesus who even when it's inconvenient, even when people are coming with not his agenda, even when people are sitting kind of sideways to what he is aiming for, he still is gracious and compassionate. He still cares and provides for them. What we see here is is a gentle and lowly king who provides for each and every one of us. And then we come to the next story in the gospel. And, and in this story, the I am, the Lord, passes by the disciples. And again, Mark is wanting us to see, to see that Jesus is the king and that he has all authority. And Mark is also inviting us to wrestle with this puzzle that the disciples still aren't getting. So I was, uh, maybe this was middle school, maybe high school, I was going out to a very popular restaurant in Denver, and the line was huge. I mean, out the door, wait an hour and a half, and we were there with a group from out of town, so we decided just to wait for it. And as the line snaked through, you passed by some other stores next to the restaurant, and there was one store that was a little weird, and it had some kind of weird, a little bit new agey stuff out front, but it also had some 3D puzzle pictures that if you crossed your eyes right and you stood at just the right angle and then a number of other things, all of a sudden you would see instead of just these random dots, this 3D picture pop out at you. And I spent, I think, 10 minutes staring at the picture and I did not get it. And then someone nudged me over a little bit and turned my head a little and, and I went cross-eyed and all of a sudden I could see it and this beautiful picture popped out at me of clouds and a, a plane flying through and it was amazing. 
And then I took a step to the left to see it better, and I couldn't see it anymore. And in the next five minutes we waited there, I spent the whole time trying to get it back, and I couldn't. And that's often how how people are in the Gospel of Mark and how I think we are in our lives, that, that we look at Jesus and we don't really get him and it's really confusing. And then all of a sudden we see, for just a moment, we see. We see Jesus who provides for us and who provides for me and who isn't just some, some distant figure out there, but who is, who is my Savior. And then we lose it again. And all the way through the Gospel of Mark, the disciples get it and they lose it again. So they've just seen Jesus do this great miracle, providing loaves and fish for thousands of people, and and then Jesus sends them off across the lake, and he goes off to pray, and and they hit this windstorm called the Sharkia, or kind of like a shark, this this nasty storm that shows up, and they are laboring against the oars, and it doesn't seem like they're in danger of sinking, but they are just harassed and helpless in the face of this storm. They are rowing like crazy, and they're getting nowhere. And then Jesus comes down, we think kind of between 3 and 6 in the morning, so they've been battling these waves all night. And then the text says the funniest thing. It says as Jesus was about to pass by them. As Jesus was about to pass by them? Why that language? And scholars have come up with lots of different explanations. I won't bore you with all of them, and some of them are really rather silly. But I think the solution is to read this again in terms of the Old Testament. And when Jesus is about to pass them by, we should hear echoes again of Israel in the wilderness, and the Lord passes by Moses to show him his glory and his presence. And fairly consistently, when these particular words are used, the idea is this is God revealing himself and who he is to us. And so Jesus here, with that particular language, is is supposed to trigger in our minds a picture, whoa, this could be God. This could be God. And then the disciples notice Jesus, and he comes to them, and he says, take courage, it is I, don't be afraid. And the it is I there is actually literally, I am. I am the Old Testament name of God. So Jesus comes to his disciples, and he walks on the water, and he, he passes by them in the way that only the Lord does, and then he comes to them. And what we see Jesus doing here is taking the thundering, powerful, amazing, unapproachable God and coming to us. He is taking the ultimate authority and he is showing how that authority is for us and with us. And so in our lives, even as we wrestle with what does it mean to... What does it mean to follow the Lord? What does it mean to submit to Him? Do we really want to do that? This text shows us a Lord who is, yes, almighty and all-powerful and beyond us and great beyond our comprehension, but this text also shows us a God who comes to us in our need, who comes to us in our hunger, who comes to us in our harassed and troubled states and says, take courage, I am, don't be afraid. And the text tells us the disciples don't get this. They're amazed, but they don't understand because they didn't understand about the loaves, they didn't understand about the I am, and they didn't understand about the wind, and they just didn't understand. But the text lands with a group of people in Gennesaret who, even though they aren't Jesus' closest disciples, they know something about him. And so they, they run off and they bring all the sick and all the troubled, and they, they drag or they carry or they, they help everyone who's in need to come to Jesus. And Jesus heals all these people who, even if they don't have a perfect knowledge of him, they recognize him. 
And honestly, if we read through this story, we might, we might not always like where we see ourselves, but, but part of this is that we're more like the disciples right there than the crowd, that we don't, we maybe don't really have the level of amazement before Jesus that we should. We don't get Jesus in the way that we should. And what we need to hear is that Jesus is our King and our Lord and our Savior. He is the one who heals us. He is the one who comes to us in our worst moments with hope. He is the one who who provides our daily bread when we feel like we are hungry and there is no hope. All the authorities of this world, a bit like King Arthur in the quest for the Holy Grail, are a little bit of a joke. Even the best, even the best fail. And you know, in Monty Python, the quest for the Holy Grail, I'll spoil the ending for you a little bit. King Arthur does not get the Holy Grail. He doesn't really succeed at much of anything in the whole movie, to be honest with you. And even if you go back to the grand King Arthur myths, at the end of his life, King Arthur, well, he loses the loyalty of his knights, he loses his wife, he loses his battle, he loses his nation, and he wanders off into obscurity. And that's where all the earthly kingdoms are headed. But Jesus gives us something different. Jesus gives us a king who comes to us, and he has ultimate authority because he made everything, and he made the world, and he is the king. He is the only one who can ultimately say, I am the king. But he is a king who comes to us peasants and who raises us to be his brothers and sisters. And so today, on the one hand, you are invited and even commanded and and called to lay down your life, to submit to Jesus' authority and to declare that he is the almighty king. But when we embrace Jesus as king, we find that he is also our brother and our friend, that he comes to us and he provides what we need, even when we have a hard time recognizing what we need. This is King Jesus, and he is our only hope. Let's pray. Father, we pray that you renew our hope. And Lord, if we are among those who are claiming authority we do not own or misusing our authority, then convict us and change us, we pray. And Father, if we are among those who are beaten down and just unsure of where to turn, help us to turn to you. And Father, if we are among the many, many around us these days who want no authority but want to completely determine our own selves, will help us to find our true selves in you. We pray that you work in us through whatever means you need to to help us to help us become more like Jesus. Help us to lay aside all our distractions and temptations and find real life in you. And we pray this in the name of our Lord and Savior, our King Jesus. Amen.